Thanks uh, very much indeed. Um, like uh, the other two, with which I agree with 100% with what they say, I'm not going to offer a clear signpost that says this is where the future is going to be. I wish I could, but in mm. fact I think it's extremely difficult and problematic. I'm going to address five specifics uh, for a few moments in each case um, to go through the considerations of where we are. They are the overall context which we're in at the moment, the constitutional process that we're in at the moment, the political situation as between the different political parties, the policy issues, and the international context. I'm just going to say a few words on each of those. Firstly, on the overall context, I really do think there's no clarity at all at the moment about where we are. There are a large number, I include myself amongst these, of Remainers who, as the Athenians just described, feel very distressed about the state of affairs that's arrived. And I think Athenians also right to say it's not something just in the UK, but much more widely in a variety of different ways. But those, uh, that group also feels the need not to rubbish the uh, result of the referendum decision and to imply that the people who voted 52-48 to leave the European Union were somehow stupid, ill-informed or whatever. And there's very little argument that suggests that people are going out now and saying, we've simply got to go back and ignore that referendum decision, either Parliament taking a decision, taking no account of the referendum decision, or going straight to a second referendum on the assumption that somehow uh, you'll get a different result, or go to a general election, or whatever. But there's a big dishonesty in this, because there really is a large number of people, including significant sections of the so-called establishment in Britain, which really deeply in themselves believe that we ought to be in the European Union, we ought to be staying in the European Union, we ought not to be leaving the European Union, but don't feel really able to express that very strongly in the light of the uh, referendum decision. The key issue for them is time. As, as, as uh, the outcomes of what has happened becomes more clear, the examples already been given of the decline in the pound, with a whole set of implications of that, perhaps even more serious than university professor's salary, the removal, <laughs> of, mar so. the, the, the removal of marmite from our supermarket <laughs> shelf uh, as a, a symbol, is the difference in the relationship between both the wholesalers and retailers. It's the Dutch again, I think, the marmite decision, wasn't it? We are to blame for everything. We are to blame for everything. But much more seriously, petrol, what's going to happen there? the impact on inflation, we saw the most recent inflation figures yesterday, and that all takes time to work through, but as it works through, to what extent will it cause people to change their view about what's happening? The Treasury forecasts about the £66 billion loss to the UK economy as a result of this decision, and the implications of what that means. So time is quite a serious factor in this. It started out after the referendum results, but a lot of people are saying well, it's not quite as bad as you thought it was going to be. It's not a disaster. Everybody said this, that, and the other, but actually it's not so terrible. As time goes on, that complacency about the outcome of the referendum decision will be less apparent. And that big chunk of people who in their waters believe that actually we, our best interest is in the single European market, remaining members of the European Union, you'll find that point of view will become more generally expressed. On the other side of that general context, 
Though you have the three Brexiteers at the centre of government policy, David Davis, Boris Johnson and Liam Fox, what becomes clear also is the clarity about what the leave process will be is really very, very blurred indeed. There is not a clear game plan in government or anywhere else which says actually this is the course we should follow to maximise our chances of a successful Brexit. It's clear to me there's still deep divisions within the government uh, about uh, what to do about this. Deep divisions, I suspect, even in the Prime Minister's mind about what to do about this. Um, and, as I say, no real clarity. I believe the reason for the uncertainty about whether the government can produce a white paper or a green paper or any form of statement at all about the basis of an Article 50 letter by the end of March is because they're not yet clear what the fundamental negotiation strategies for the UK in that Article 50 process should be. I'll come to some of the points of substance in just a second. But I think it's really a serious mistake to believe there's a clear idea that exists somewhere about how we exist. It's just they're not telling us. I think the state of affairs is there is not clarity about it. Were I still a partisan politician, I would say some of those Brexiteers, uh, David Davis, uh, Liam Fox, Boris Johnson, were guilty of being rhetorical in the referendum campaign without having a clear idea of the truth or otherwise of what they were saying when they were describing the consequences of a leave decision. Um, even if I'm wrong, what I think is the case is they have not exposed to us, in a very general sense, the population, what the logic of the leave decision is, how it can be carried through without damaging Britain in a number of very, very serious respects. Uh, and that uncertainty still remains there. So my overall first point is a contextual one, that it's a very unstable context at the moment. We simply don't know how things are going to evolve. There are lots of things being said which people are saying for effect and for rhetorical purpose, rather than actually reflecting what the real situation actually is on all sides of the discussion. Remainers saying, well, we're going to leave the Brexit because we've got to respect the referendum decision. Leavers saying we've got a clear strategy for getting out. All we've got to do is uh, be steady as we go. And I think all of this is essentially nonsense. I think it's all up for grabs as the situation moves forward. The second consideration is the constitutional process. Um, we have the, the, the courts, parliament, the commons and the lords. The courts is a very active question at the moment. One of my former special advisors uh, works for Mishkondorea, the uh, law company which is um, advising the people who are arguing that there should be a parliamentary vote before the Article 50 position. And I talked to her yesterday because they've all come out of the court, all thinking, and they all believe that they will win the court case and the courts will require that there do be a parliamentary vote before an Article 50 process. Um, whatever the decision which will be announced in a couple of weeks, it will then go to the Supreme Court on December 7th, 8th, who will then appeal, uh, that, that, that will then be appealed to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court will then take its view. And that's a big question. The issue there fundamentally is, would the issuing of an Article 50 letter remove fundamental rights from the British people, which it is argued cannot be done without an Act of Parliament? Or is it simply a constitutional treaty which can reasonably be done within, uh, by the use of the royal prerogative, which would not require an Act of Parliament? 
That's a very big issue, which um, I don't think it's at all clear how to be resolved. I've read all the submissions carefully, and though I'm not a lawyer, won't this expert and many of the people in the room. It does seem to me the argument there should be a parliamentary vote before the Article 50 letter is issued is a very uh, powerful one indeed. And on my, as I say, untutored reading of the cases, uh, I think that case uh, will be made. Parliament itself is the other aspect of this. Um, there is not a majority in Parliament at the moment for leaving the European Union. Firstly, in the House of Commons, a clear majority of MPs are in favour of staying in the European Union. Now, taking account of what I said earlier, many of those people who are in favour are not expressing that because they feel the need to honour the result of the referendum. And some have said that though they themselves are in favour of Remain, they feel they should somehow vote to leave. Uh, but in, in addition to that, there is the House of Lords, who are an overwhelming majority of Remainers, and who basically don't give a toss about the uh, democratic decision of the European people. Uh, they simply say they'll decide what they decide. And that's it, thank you very much. And that's not an entirely trivial point, because the Lords has to decide in these areas, and there is a strong pro-EU membership majority in the Lords. So if Parliament starts to get its grips on this decision, as opposed to the executive, uh, then I think the outcome again is very unpredictable. Now, I would never say to anybody, bet any money on us not leaving the European Union. But I would say there is a 10 to 15% chance of us not leaving the European Union, contrary to what most people think, because of that overall context and the political situation around it. And just to emphasize one point in the context of that, People accept there is a mandate to leave the European Union, but they do not accept that there is a mandate about the way in which you leave the European Union, e.g. what weight you give to uh, membership, UK membership of the single market, what weight you give to restraining freedoms of movement of labour, and so on. And so though people say, well, actually, yes, we have voted to leave, the uncertainty about what that really means in practice, some people call it soft Brexit, hard Brexit, I don't like to see myself that's a particularly felicitous use of language to deal with it, but all this range of questions means that parliamentarians of all types, uh, Conservatives, Labour, members of Parliament, members of the House of Lords, will say we ought to be engaged in that process. So there is a constitutional process at stake here. The third point, is the state, state of politics itself. I think the Prime Minister made a serious mistake at the Tory party conference a couple of weeks ago in that she claimed to herself a mandate from the referendum which was much greater than simply leaving the European Union. She said it was a statement about a whole set of values that people had, whether it was about immigration, about uh, bankers' bonuses, whatever it might happen to be. And there's some truth in all aspects of this. But she did, to an extent, overreach herself by making herself the voice of that so-called mandate of what the referendum vote was supposed to be. And large numbers of people in her own party do not agree. If, as um, I did, you had watched the debates in Parliament last Monday and Wednesday uh, around these questions, which David Davis led to the government, a whole series of significant Conservatives beginning to state that they did not accept the mandate in quite those ways. Labour, for the first time since 2015, some would say the first time since 2010, beginning to get their act together 
with Keir Starmer leading for the Brexit campaign, doing extremely coherently, forming the director of public prosecutions, broadly uniting Labour, broadly working together with Conservatives and Liberal Democrats in a position which puts the government under much greater pressure. And I'm sure Theresa May, when she went to the Conservative Party conference, uh, believed she was facing a complete open enemy. I mean, the Labour Party was all over the place, completely hopeless, in a terrible position. She could essentially do what she wanted. But I think there were the first signs in the last week or 10 days of a more coherent opposition emerging in that position. The, third, the fourth question, the policy issues, I think they're straightforward. They don't need a great deal of attention here. The two big ones are UK membership of the single market and the implications on the economy and immigration. Immigration is the one that plays with the electorate, I've got no doubt. But actually, at the end of the day, UK non-participation in the single market, with the negative economic implications of that, those are widely indicated, and which you've dealt with in, in some detail on what you've had to say. Uh, these are enormous questions, and where there is no idea at the moment what the actual correct policy position should be. There are other issues. Security is an important one where the Prime Minister has been clear she wants to work with the other European Union countries in the Justice and Home Affairs uh, portfolios, dealing with counter-terrorism and so on. Funding of science and research is a core one, as Athena has uh, mentioned. But a whole string of issues, the policy issues, that arise. And at the end of the day, some mix of all of these will be uh, the deal that is finally reached. But for the reasons I said at the beginning, we don't know what that mix will actually be. Will it be We'll be in the European single market and we'll forget the work concerns about immigration. Will it be we'll be completely concerned about immigration and we won't be a part of the European single market with the economic consequences that arise? Will we share with the European colleagues in the science and research funding, despite uh, not being members of the European Union, how can that work? And so on. And there are issues after issues after issues, agriculture and fisheries, where does that fit and so on. And it's a very complicated network of issues, but I'm afraid I'm not able to say that is where I think the outcome is going to be, because I think that we just don't know how this process I've described earlier is going to play out. The one point on which I very strongly agree is that the having to take seriously the consequences of free trade, the consequences of globalisation, its impact in all parts, not just of the UK economy, but the European economy, is something we're going to have to do in quite a different way. The truth is, in the northeast of England, if you wipe out coal fields, steel production, shipbuilding, and say on the global markets they simply don't exist anymore in the northeast of England, and what does that mean for the communities left behind? That is a big question. And the fact is, I mean, Margaret Thatcher was principally responsible for the not worrying about that. But you could say that New Labour did the same. There are all kinds of consequences of how that operates. But there are not good solutions at the moment to dealing with those, quote, left behind, unquote, by globalisation, by the operation of free trade internationally. And I think that the political implications of that are very serious indeed. You see across the whole of uh, Europe the decline of the Social Democratic Party, which traditionally were built on those areas, because those parties have not succeeded in finding answers to these questions about globalisation for the communities in those areas which were, of course, precisely the communities which voted to leave in such quantities. And my final very brief point is simply about the international context. Reference has already been made to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. 
Um, and the implication of that for this whole process is not trivial, though I now think it's pretty clear that Hillary Clinton will be elected. Uh, but more important for the process that we're talking about with U UK withdrawal from the EU are the elections in Germany and France, and in particular, and which are both next year. And I would say particularly in France, where I think it still remains extremely unclear who's going to end up as president of France. Uh, I think it's pretty clear myself that Marine Le Pen, previously referred to, will be in the final two. So I'll be quite surprised at the end if she does in fact end up president. So I think the chance of some kind of French referendum on the EU membership can't be absolutely excluded as a result of all of that process. Uh, and I really don't know who's going to end up uh, in the leadership position in France. My private betting money would be on Nicolas Sarkozy coming back, which is something to reflect on and uh, think about. <laughs> in Germany, I'm optimistic that Angela Merkel will return again. I see this morning two of her potential opponents within the CDU have said they will back her to continue leading the German uh, um, the CDU in that election. I expect it to be another CDU-SPD grand coalition, uh, though perhaps with the balance of votes slightly changed. And to be frank, I very much hope that is the case. I think Angela Merkel is the nearest thing to a safe pair of hands in all of this. Though I'm, in fact, very critical of some of her decisions uh, that she's taken, particularly around the Eurozone and some aspects of the immigration process. But that's another element of uncertainty in this overall position. So I sum up, having gone through the five points, the context, the constitutional process, the state of politics, the policy issues, the international context, by apologising, I'm not sending a clear message saying this is how it's going to be. But I do think those are the things that have to be watched. And the <coughs> fundamental point is the lack of certainty about what the case is, which means that everybody who has a view in this process, as both of my predecessors have said, needs to get stuck in and make the arguments for what you think is important out of this process and to fight for it. There's no determinism in this outcome at all. <coughs>